In February 1972, President Richard M. Nixon shocked the world when he traveled to the People's Republic of China. Remember, China had been closed off for over two decades from the rest of the world, and many saw them as espousing a radical version of communism, one that was even more dangerous than that espoused by the Soviet Union. Richard Nixon had risen to the presidency with a reputation as a stern anti-communist. And yet, he became the first American president to visit the People's Republic of China. It was a historic moment, as the leader of the world's most powerful capitalist democratic country met Mao Zedong, the communist dictator of the most populous country in the world. By this time, the former anti-communist firebrand Richard Nixon now saw himself as a statesman who would usher in a new era of peace. He had said in his first inaugural address that the greatest title that history could bestow was that of peacemaker. And when Richard Nixon returned from the People's Republic of China, he believed that he had attained that very title. In this speech, Richard Nixon had just returned from China and arrived at Andrews Air Force Base and was greeted by a crowd and Vice President Spiro Agnew. He is at the peak of his diplomatic powers and at the pinnacle of his presidency. As you listen to this speech, think about how President Richard Nixon believed that he was ushering a new age of peace and a new foreign policy for the United States, one based on realism and coexistence with the communist powers. Many of America's allies in the region, like Taiwan and Japan, were concerned that President Nixon's opening to China would mean a reduced commitment from the United States. Listen to how President Nixon tries to assuage their fears and reinforce America's commitment to its allies. And also listen to the optimism about the new relations between the United States and China. I can't help but thinking about modern-day developments with China and how these remarks look in hindsight with what's happened between the United States and China in recent years. Enjoy the show. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, 
and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. February 28th, 1972. Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland. President Richard Nixon's remarks upon returning from the People's Republic of China. Mr. Vice President, members of the Congress, members of the Cabinet, members of the Diplomatic Corps, and ladies and gentlemen, I want to express my very deep appreciation and the appreciation of all of us for this wonderfully warm welcome that you've given us and for the support that we have had on the trip that we've just completed from Americans of both political parties and in all walks of life across this land. And because of the superb efforts of the hardworking members of the press who accompanied us, they got even less sleep than I did. Millions of Americans in this past week have seen more of China than I did. Consequently tonight, I would like to talk to you not about what we saw, but about what we did, to sum up the results of the trip and to put it in perspective. When I announced this trip last July, I described it as a journey for peace. In the last 30 years, Americans have in three different wars gone off by the hundreds of thousands to fight and some to die in Asia and in the Pacific. One of the central motives behind my journey to China was to prevent that from happening a fourth time to another generation of Americans. As I've often said, peace means more than the mere absence of war. In a technical sense, we were at peace with the People's Republic of China before this trip. But a gulf of almost 12,000 miles and 22 years of non-communication and hostility separated the United States of America from the 750 million people who live in the People's Republic of China, and that's one-fourth of all the people in the world. As a result of this trip, we have started the long process of building a bridge across that gulf. And even now, we have something better than the mere absence of war. Not only have we completed a week of intensive talks at the highest levels, we have set up a procedure whereby we can continue to have discussions in the future. We have demonstrated that nations with very deep and fundamental differences can learn to discuss those differences calmly, rationally and frankly, without compromising their principles. This is the basis of a structure for peace, where we can talk about differences rather than fight about them. The primary goal of this trip was to re-establish communication with the People's Republic of China after a generation of hostility. We achieved that goal. Let me turn now to our joint communique. 
We did not bring back any written or unwritten agreements that will guarantee peace in our time. We did not bring home any magic formula which will make unnecessary the efforts of the American people to continue to maintain the strength so that we can continue to be free. We made some necessary and important beginnings, however, in several areas. We entered into agreements to expand cultural, educational, and journalistic contacts between the Chinese and the American people. We agreed to work to begin and broaden trade between our two countries. We have agreed that the communications that have now been established between our governments will be strengthened and expanded. Most important, we have agreed on some rules of international conduct which will reduce the risk of confrontation and war in Asia and in the Pacific. We agreed that we are opposed to domination of the Pacific area by any one power. We agreed that international disputes should be settled without the use of the threat of force, and we agreed that we are prepared to apply this principle to our mutual relations. With respect to Taiwan, we stated our established policy that our forces overseas will be reduced gradually as tensions ease, and that our ultimate objective is to withdraw our forces as a peaceful settlement is achieved. We have agreed that we will not negotiate the fate of other nations behind their backs, and we did not do so at Peking. There were no secret deals of any kind. We have done all this without giving up any United States commitment to any other country. In our talks, the talks that I had with the leaders of the People's Republic and that the Secretary of State had with the Office of the Government of the People's Republic in the Foreign Affairs area, we both realized that a bridge of understanding that spans almost 12,000 miles in 22 years of hostility can't be built in one week of discussions. But we have agreed to begin to build that bridge, recognizing that our work will require years of patient effort. We made no attempt to pretend that major differences did not exist between our two governments, because they do exist. This communique was unique in honestly setting forth differences rather than trying to cover them up with diplomatic double talk. One of the gifts that we left behind in Angcho was a planted sapling of the American redwood tree. As all Californians know, and as most Americans know, redwoods grow from saplings into the giants of the forest. But the process is not one of days or even years. It is a process of centuries. Just as we hope that those saplings, those tiny saplings that we left in China, will grow one day into mighty redwoods, so we hope, too, that the seeds planted on this journey for peace will grow and prosper into a more enduring structure for peace and security in the Western Pacific. But peace, 
peace is too urgent to wait for centuries. We must seize the moment to move toward that goal now, and this is what we have done on this journey. As I am sure you realize, it was a great experience for us to see the timeless wonders of ancient China, the changes that are being made in modern China. And one fact stands out, among many others, from my talks with the Chinese leaders. It is their total belief, their total dedication to their system of government. That is their right, just as it is the right of any country to choose the kind of government it wants. But as I return from this trip, just as has been the case on my return from other trips abroad, which have taken me to over 80 countries, I come back to America with an even stronger faith in our system of government. As I flew across America today, all the way from Alaska, over the Rockies, the Plains, and then on to Washington, I thought of the greatness of our country. And most of all, I thought of the freedom, the opportunity, the progress that 200 million Americans are privileged to enjoy. I realized Again, this is a beautiful country. And tonight, my prayer, my hope, is that as a result of this trip, our children, will have a better chance to grow up in a peaceful world. Thank you. Since we launched This American President in 2017, we've spent countless hours of effort to bring you compelling stories and lessons from history. We want to keep giving you the best content possible, and we need your help to do it. If you feel like you've benefited from listening to our episodes, we hope you'll consider becoming a patron of our podcast. Our patrons empower us to access the best scholarly resources, improve our production quality, and expand our reach across the nation. Again, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident and signing up. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.